All right. In terms of announcements, just a reminder that we're taking photos. Julia's back there taking. Which one do you want? That one. Okay. Taking photos for uh, church directory, so you need to make sure that you are dressed for that. Also, there is a prayer vigil, if anybody wants to find out about this. There is a prayer vigil. They did this last year for Pastor Saeed Abedini, who is a Christian pastor who is in prison there in um, in Iraq, I mean Iran. And this is going to be at 6 o'clock Friday evening at Houston Baptist University, and the building will be Dillon too. So I have some uh, flyers here uh, that were given to me if anybody would like to go to that. Uh, Friday evening. I think that's probably also a good news club. Great news. Good news on the good news club today. Yeah, I heard that that went very well. It's this year we're doing it at Westwood University, at Westwood, at Westwood Elementary, which is over on off of uh, Hammerley near Springwoods High School. So it's a completely different kind of group. It's only third-grade students and doing real well. And if anybody's interested in helping, although I think right now they have a lot of helpers, but you always need to have two or three in reserve in case people get sick or break a leg or whatever. Remember, yeah, go to Israel. Remember today, Happy New Year, everybody. It's Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah started at sundown. Shana Tova, that's the Hebrew greeting for Happy New Year. I think that's just about it. And Mike McCoskey is going to be here on October 19th and the picnic on the 18th. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure you're ready in fellowship, enjoying your fellowship with God, or if not, uh, recovering fellowship so we can abide in Christ and walk by the Spirit. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we could come together this evening for a prayer before class to focus on things that we can give praise for in terms of the uh, Good News Club today and thankful for the students that were there and for how well everything went and those that are helping out. Father, we're thankful for the DM2 conference this last week, and we pray that that would really impact people and challenge people to be uh, prepared and open to teaching and helping out in different areas. And, Father, we continue to pray also for Chafer Seminary and for George Meisinger. Pray for those uh, from this congregation, either locally or beyond, like Matt Hagemeyer and uh, John Williamson, who are seminary students. Pray for them and their courses and their studies. And, Father, we continue to pray for us that we might be responsive to the challenges of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we've got a couple of questions it came in, one came in at the end last week, and I'm going to answer it in the course of what I'm teaching tonight, and that had to do with the identity of the uh, Antichrist in terms of his Roman identity. And then there were a couple of other questions that I'm really surprised no one has asked these other questions. I've asked them many times when I've been studying and don't have really good answers for some of them, but they're questions that I think have occurred to everybody, but just nobody comes right out and asks those questions. And they have to do with Daniel's 70th week. So we're going to do a little review of that, kind of flip through some slides real, very rapidly, just to come back and understand. Uh, again, I think it's good review to go through the whole scenario on that chronology. It's one of the most remarkable prophecies in Scripture, and it, it's one I cover every now and then, but every now and then I find people saying, well, you just need to go over that one more time. I'm just not quite got that one point. Now, some of you who may be very familiar with numbers, uh, 
can get, move through that pretty rapidly. But those of us for whom arithmetic is, is, is sort of a curse, part of the curse on the earth, we have to go through this a little more often. So we're looking at the tribulation. Here's a slide showing the ages, the age of Gentiles broken down to three dispensations, the age of Israel broken down into three dispensations with the Messianic age as a hinge dispensation. Then we're in the church age, which is comparable to a dispensation. Okay, and then we have that church age ends with the rapture of the church. And then we're looking at that red vertical line, the tribulation, which is a seven-year period that comes sometime after the rapture of the church. It doesn't begin with the rapture. The rapture ends the church age, but it's a peace treaty that is signed with the Antichrist that comes in, um, that, that begins actually this period known as Daniel's 70th week. So this comes, it begins with this decree to, uh, excuse me, the whole prophecy begins back in the Old Testament as we looked at last time. 69 weeks of 70 weeks prophesied by Daniel occurred before the cross ending right before the cutting off of the Messiah. And then there's this huge gap, this interim period, sometimes called the great parenthesis by some dispensationalists, that ends with the rapture. Then there's a little intervening transitional period, and then the coming prince will sign this treaty, this covenant with Israel. That kicks off the the stopwatch again, and we have a period of seven years that's divided equally into two three-and-a-half-year periods. But this is known as the tribulation period. Now, we went through this last time. The Daniel wanted to, uh, had been reading through Jeremiah, coming to understand that, that, um, that God had decreed that there would be a 70-year captivity. This came out of his study of the... Uh, passages in Jeremiah. So the basic outline of Daniel's 70th week is it's a look at this future period, that it's a 70, it's called 70 periods of seven. Now the question that came in was, what's the connection between this future 70 years uh, period that turns out to be 70 times seven and the previous 70 sabbatical years that Israel had violated, and so God was going to take them out of the land to give it rest. Uh, Only in terms of the number, God is using a symmetrical pattern here. In the Old Testament, uh, there were 70 sabbatical years. Now, a sabbatical year came once every seven years. So if they were going to be removed from the land for 70 years to give them rest for each of those 70 sabbatical years that they had been disobedient, 70 times 7 equals 490. Today, yesterday, forever. So that framework simply becomes a pattern for the future. It's not related to uh, sabbatical years that were violated. Okay? It's just the number's the same. So the, the future 490 years that, that is being predicted here is not related to sabbatical years. It's only literarily, only because there have been 490 years in the past, now we're going to have another 490 years. That's what they have in common. It's not, the text doesn't say there's 490 years for you and your people, and that's related to the sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee, or anything like that. It's just the number's the same. That's the only, the only connection. And so we see at the end of Daniel uh, 9 that there's this, this basic organization. There's 70 weeks, that 70 periods of seven. It doesn't say weeks. It just says 70 periods of seven. Seven times seven is 490 years. It's broken down into, if you look at, open your Bibles and look at the passage in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, you'll see that the first part is broken down into two periods. At the end of verse 25, or about halfway through verse 25, the statement is made, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Well, seven plus 62 equals 69. Now, there have been a lot of people, and usually they come from an ah-mill or post-mill 
framework, which means they're looking at this as having already been fulfilled, that the whole 70 weeks was fulfilled before the cross. That's the standard view of non-premillennialists. So they try to peg, okay, that 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 uh, the first seven-week uh, period ended with Cyrus, and then the next period ends with uh, Alexander the Great, and they come up with their own different schemes, none of which are satisfactory because they're trying to put everything back into the period before the cross. Among pre-mill and dispensationalists, they see the seven weeks and 62 weeks as simply uh, a literary way of saying 69. It's There will be a seven, and pl- a seven plus 69, I mean, seven plus 62-week period. There's nothing historically to look at in terms of uh, what happens if they return to the land. If the decree is in 444, what happens 49 years later? 49 years later is roughly somewhere around 395, 396. What happened then? Well, we don't know of anything significant that happened then. And there, there's never been anybody who's come up with anything satisfactorily other than uh, perhaps indicating that it's during that first period of 49 years that Israel really consolidates in their their position in, in their return from the land and then there's a that's followed by uh, by the remaining years. But even that seems a little forced. It's like, well, we're trying to make this work into something, and there's nothing. There. That's a question I've always waited for people to ask me. I don't know the answer, and I've read and read on this, and nobody else seems to know the answer. So we have the basic text. Let me just kind of skip through these slides, and let me find a forward slide because I don't want to go through the entire thing all over again. Here's the background. As I was mentioning earlier, we'll look at this slide again, that you have in the previous time period, 490 years, which was covered by the 70 times 7 sabbatical years. It's still, because it's 490 years, this was a slide, I think this originally came from Randy Price, this is a slide that uh, that indicates 490 years is, of course, going to have 70 sabbatical years because that's how the math works out. But the text never makes an emphasis out of that. They, there are going to be these these periods of years, so that's a little bit confusing. Uh, the basis for the 70 years is Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, as well as Jeremiah uh, 29, 10. And this is what Daniel read when he is, realizes as he counted on his fingers and toes that he had, they have arrived in the time period where it's time for the Lord to bring his people uh, back to the land. So the text clearly says there are going to be six things accomplished at the end, and all of these are accomplished with regard to Israel. That's what comes across is very clear in the text that the, the 70 weeks are determined for you and your people and your holy city to do these things. Some people ask the question, well, uh, because it looks when it says finish the transgression, make an end of sin, atone for iniquity, that that looks like what was accomplished at the cross at the first advent. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is that uh, the 70 weeks are determined, not the first 69 weeks are determined to accomplish these things. Those three things were accomplished at the end of the 69th week. After the 69th week was when Jesus was, was, was crucified. But this is the 70 weeks, the full 490-year period is necessary to bring this to a conclusion. So it's not talking about what was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. It's talking about dealing experientially with Israel's sin, their idolatry, and their rebellion against God, and their rejection of the Messiah. So the last three all make it clear that this is they're all fulfilled only at the end when, when the Messiah returns, when everlasting righteousness is brought in, when he brings in his kingdom. Uh, it f- completes the fulfillment of prophecy related to the coming of the kingdom. This is when all of the... the uh, uh, unconditional covenants from the Old Testament are brought into effect. The Abrahamic covenant is fully realized. The New Covenant is fully realized. The Davidic covenant is fully realized. And the Land Covenant is fully realized. It's, they're not realized until then. 
uh, in spite of the fact, one of the catchwords you'll hear people talk about today in a lot of non-dispensational circles and sometimes in, and, and in progressive dispensationalism is a term called realized eschatology. Now, eschatology has to do with future things. But some of those future things, if you believe what they believe, that we're in some form of the kingdom now, then we're realizing some of those prophetic things in a shadow form today, or we're realizing them in a partial form today, and already here, but not quite fully. We'll talk about that when we get into the, to the millennial section again. But, but this is not an already not yet view. It's clear that, that we're not there yet, and none of this comes in until the, um, the kingdom fully arrives with Jesus. So, Skipping ahead, I want to move through some of the slides I brought up last time. Let's go to our first good chart. There's this decree to restore. This is, this is stated in Daniel 9.25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore, that as we looked at last time, there are four different decrees issued by Persian rulers related to Israel, but there's only one that fits the bill because the text says, after uh, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, not to return to Jerusalem, that was the decree of Cyrus to send Ezra back. It was a decree that you can return to the, to Israel. It's a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And then the last phrase of that verse says, it will be built again, referring to Jerusalem, with plaza and moat. Now, those two terms are important. The plaza was the marketplace. So it's going to be have a rebuilt economy, and the moat has to do with the defense of the city. So it's a rebuilding of the walls. It's not just a rebuilding and resettlement in the in the land. It is a rebuilding of it so that the economy is flourishing and it has its defenses in place. That a decree to that end doesn't occur until 444 BC when uh, Artaxerxes gives that to his cupbearer Nehemiah to take it back to the land. So this can be dated to March the fifth. 444 B.C. and stated scripturally in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 3. So we have this initial period broken down in the text uh, in verse 26. After 62 weeks, or the seven weeks and 62 weeks are first mentioned in Daniel 9.25. And then after that second period, the 62 weeks, after that the Messiah is cut off. So you come, this is really important because the text is saying that there's a gap here. After you come to the conclusion of that 62nd week, the stopwatch stops. After that, so there's a pause. After that, the Messiah is cut off. The other thing that has to happen is that the uh, temple is going to be destroyed. There's... Uh, uh, and that destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city, which is in the second line in verse 26, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. So two things have to happen between the 69th week and the 70th week. And they are the Messiah is cut off, Jesus is crucified, and the city is destroyed, and that occurred uh, a little over 35 years later. So the fact that it says after the 69th week indicates a break in the action because the 70th week doesn't start until verse 27. And he, that is the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's what starts that last week. So it's really clear that there's a gap here. Jesus has his triumphal entry on March the 30th of AD 33, and that is exactly in fulfillment. 70 times 7 is 490 years. Then you take the 69 years, multiply it times 7, it's 483 years, which comes to 173,880 days. I memorized that number when I was in college. 
I was so impressed with this. I love teaching this. This is one of those great prophecies in the Scripture that gives us such great confidence in the accuracy of the Bible. And then you will always have this problem with what are the 360 days. And you have to compare Scripture with Scripture in Daniel and in Revelation because different terms are used to describe the same thing. It's called a half a week in Daniel 9.27, and then in Daniel 7.25, 12.7, Revelation 12.14, it's described as a time times, that would be two, and a half a time. Still comes out to three and a half. It's described in Revelation 12.6 and 11.3. Uh, no, notice that in over here you have Revelation 12.4.14 and Revelation 12.6. These are in the same context. So this time period is equivalent to 1,260 days according to these two verses. And this phrase is used in these other two verses. And then Revelation 11.3 also mentions the 1,260 days. And then another reference is used of 42 months. And this is used in Revelation 11.2 and 13.5, which is the same basic context here. 11.2 and 11.3 are just right next to each other, showing that the 42 months is 1,260 days. And that is equal to time times and a half a time. Therefore, when you work this out, it comes to the fact that each month must be comprised of 30 days, and a year would then be a lunar year of 360 days. You can also check this. 69 times 7 times 360 is 173,880 days. You can work out the details from March 5th, 444 B.C., add 173,880 days to that. You come up with March 30th, A.D. 33. To verify that, check your math. 444 B.C. to A.D. 33 minus 1, because there's no year 0, is 476 years. 476 times 365.242198, that's our modern year, comes out to 173,855 days. And then you add the days between March 5th and March 30th, and that gets you another 25 days. So it all works out. The math is impeccable there. So what happens then to those last seven years? And that's when we get into the period that comes up. What happens? And that's the tribulation period as we see in this chart that defines the coming prince and the Messiah's return. Now I want to bump ahead just a little bit again, take us through the calculations here, and we see that I'll go to this this slide here. Okay, the 70 weeks concern the nation of Israel. It's all about God's plan for Israel. I was reading Dr. Ryrie today. I read along in three or four different dispensational books as I've been teaching this just to go back and be reminded of things that other people have said. And and he makes the observation here that in an earlier period in the development of dispensationalism, the primary argument for a pre-trib rapture had to do with the imminence of the rapture, and I talked about that last time. But in recent years, and Dr. Ryrie wrote the book originally in the early 60s, but he revised it in the late 90s, and I think this reflects what changed during that period, that more of an emphasis is placed upon understanding uh, Daniel's 70th week because Daniel's 70th week is for Israel. It's not for the church. It's not for us. It's not for the bride of Christ. It is to complete God's plan and purposes for Israel. And it's important to understand that if there's this time gap there and the church is in between, that the church has to be removed in order to start things going again for that final week. And this paragraph is very important. Since the first 69 weeks have been fulfilled literally in terms of the time clock, we must expect the last week, that last seven-year period, to also be fulfilled. We have to understand this 
uh, consistently. And it's, it's funny, when you look at on-mill or, or post-mill systems where they very subtly shift from a literal hermeneutic to more of a figurative or typological hermeneutic when they get into prophetic things, they will get real play fast and loose with the details of the 70th week prophecy. They'll deal with the first part almost in a literal time frame, but then when it comes to the 70th week, I've read some that put the 70th week between the crucifixion and the fall of the of the temple. That's a lot more than one seven-year period. It just doesn't fit. But they, the only way they can make it fit is to spiritualize it. So that's a very, very important thing to understand. So in Daniel 9.27, we see the commencement of the 70th week, the covenant that starts the 70th week, and then the consummation of that. So let's just skip ahead a little bit. And we will come to our slide here on tr- key tribulation events. So the this fits over the uh, book of Revelation. The first three chapters of Revelation deal with the seven churches of the church age and are raptured to be with the Lord in the air. Then in the first three-and-a-half-year period, Israel is protected. The church, there will be something called the church or Christianity, but it's all apostate. These are, these are not believers. Uh, they're the ones who survive. They're the ones who aren't believers now. They're liberals, whatever, but they're not uh, composed of, of people who are believers. The Jewish Levitical system is going to be reinstated they're going to re- start to rebuild the, the, the temple if there's not something already there before the rapture. It could start before the rapture. It may not. Right now we have a little problem. It's called the Dome of the Rock that is sitting on top of the Temple Mount. Right, The rock is considered by Jewish tradition as well as Islamic tradition to be the foundation stone. This is where... Uh, the Garden of Eden was located. And this is the place where Abraham brought Isaac to sacrifice him. And this is the rock that was in the Holy of Holies on which the uh, Ark of the Covenant sat. They understand that continuity, uh, continuity in Scripture. And so all that is necessary in order for uh, the temple, future temple, which will be apostate, to be reestablished on the Temple Mount is for the Jews to fully control the Temple Mount. They gained uh, military control of it in 1967, and then Moshe Dayan gave, it, gave control back to the uh, Islamic uh, Committee, the Waqf, in order to control it. And so every time Jews go up there, if they're seen praying or anything like that, the Arabs riot because that's their typical response to anything. And that's the, the status quo. Since the last intifada, no non-Muslims have been allowed to go into the Dome of the Rock. So anybody who's been to Israel since 2001 has not been allowed to go into the Dome of the Rock unless you're, uh, un- unless you're Muslim. But all that somehow will be wiped out, whether it's in a war or an earthquake. We have no idea, but, but uh, I'll get back to this in, in, in just a minute. But that's, that's, that's the issue there. The temple will be there. It doesn't have to be a fully built and completed temple by the time of the uh, abomination of desolation. It can be a mobile home, sort of like the tabernacle was a mobile home. It just has to be sanctified by a resurrected priesthood, and sacrifices need to start being offered again. And so this is what the Bible predicts will happen, that there will be a a return to these sacrifices. Daniel 9.27 says... He will make a firm covenant, that's the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's referring to Israel. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. That means that there has to be, by the midpoint of the tribulation at least, an ongoing day-to-day grain offering and uh, sacrifice. And so, of course, we know that that's apostate because these sacrifices should have ended because Christ died on the cross. But this is a return to uh, to uh, Judaism and a return to the law. So you'll have the Jewish Levitical system reinstated. 
And then halfway through the tribulation period, the Antichrist, who's so full of himself and all of his conquests, will have this huge statue erected of himself in the temple, and he will call upon all the people to worship him as God. And that's when it becomes very clear that, that, that Jesus' sign has come true, where he told, uh, told the disciples that when you see this sign, you are to, those who are in Jerusalem are to flee into the hills. Those who are in Jerusalem and Judah, Judea are to flee into the hills. Notice he didn't say Jews that are all over the earth or any Christians who are all over the earth. He's talking specifically to those who are living in Jerusalem and Judea are to flee into the hills. And that starts the last half of the tribulation period. All of this is covered in the book of Revelation. The first two sets of, of judgments, the seal judgments and trumpet judgments, take place in the first half of the tribulation. And then the bold judgments, the intensified period, takes place in the second half. And there will definitely be an overt worship of Satan and a worship of the Antichrist. And I think demonism will run rampant during that period. And demons, as well as uh, elect angels, will appear, will be visible to human beings as history is brought, brought to a close. So... As we got started in Daniel's 70th week last time, I think I've answered the questions related to that. There's still one question. I don't, I don't know if any other questions have come in, but there's still one question about the identity of the Antichrist I'll get to uh, eventually as we go through this. We started this by looking at uh, the terminology of the tribulation. And so the first term that we looked at had to do with Daniel's 70th week. And some people think, that that's really the most accurate term to use. Some people say, well, tribulation is misleading because we all experience tribulation, but I think that there's a basis for that. But like a lot of these words that are used, Daniel's 70th week is only used in one place. Tribulation is only used in a couple of places. Uh, the term the Antichrist, as we'll see, is only used in one place. So the, it, the Bible doesn't always use the same term. There are a variety of different terms. So we come to uh, the second term, which is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a term that's crucial to understanding this time period and identifying what that term describes. As I put on the screen, it emphasizes special interventions of God in history. It's really a, a broad term although it is used most of the time to refer to the great end-time judgments. It is also just a generic term to describe any special intervention of God in human history where he brings victory over his enemies and demonstrates his sovereignty over the universe. The term refers both to a time of judgment as well as a time of blessing. It has this non-technical sense where God is simply demonstrating his authority over Gentile nations in judgment. A day of the Lord could be the defeat of Syria, the defeat of the Assyrians, the defeat of Babylon. That could all be described as a day of the Lord. But as a technical term, it describes a future event where God intervenes in the tribulation to judge the nations. All those judgments go back to and read through Isaiah, read through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. There are all of these judgments that are pronounced chapter after chapter on all of the nations that surround Israel. And as God brings that judgment to its final conclusion at the end of the tribulation period, this is the day of the Lord when he has the final say. So it describes this uh, judgment of God upon the nations, God brings discipline upon Israel, judgment upon Israel for their disobedience and for their uh, rebellion against him and their idolatry and to establish his messianic kingdom. So it brings history to this crescendo point of incredible violence and warfare that has broken out uh, in human history that is focused on Israel. Now, the Antichrist is not there to destroy uh, Israel, uh, except because, except as a subject people who have disobeyed him. He's clearly anti-Semitic. They're supposed to be worshiping in the temple. So this shows that the, he's kind of got a, a, 
a double uh, or dual attitude towards the Jews. He wants them to worship him. He invades their temple, but because they don't, then he turns hostile against them. But he's there not just to destroy Israel, but also I believe he's brought into the Middle East because the the worldwide coalition that he has built is collapsing and this is the focal point of the war between the other opposing uh, kings on the earth. And it is, and it, the focal point ends up being in Israel. And it is Jesus, the calling upon Jesus as the Messiah to come and rescue Israel that delivers Israel. It's, it's, it's a funny thing that in the Jewish community, there, there's a couple of myths about why Christians support Israel. And one of those myths that's completely false, is that the reason Christians support Israel and want all the Jews back in the land is once all the Jews get back in the land, then Jesus will come and destroy all of them because they haven't accepted him. Now, there are a lot of Jews who believe that. Unfortunately, we've got almost 1,800 and 1,900 years of Christian anti-Semitism that makes it difficult for them to believe otherwise. But the point is that that the reason Jesus comes back isn't so that Jews will be killed and slaughtered, but to uh, rescue Israel from the assaults of the Antichrist and from sure annihilation at the hands of the Antichrist and at the hands of Satan. We look at a couple of uh, passages that use this term in a technical sense. Uh, we look at Zechariah chapter 12, verses 2 through 5, that I put all of this up on the screen for you. God says, predicting this future time, Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. Now, we all know that the Middle East crisis is a major problem in world history, and we're told that from lots of different perspectives. And you will read people, everyone from Hal Lindsey to I don't know who else, who will say, see, this is, this is the application of this verse. Now, only in a stretched sense. The context is talking about what God is going to do. It's a future tense concept. I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. This is fulfilled in the tribulation period. It's not talking about now. It's talking about when this becomes a major problem as a focal point of all of the armies in the world at near the end of the tribulation period. So at that point, that's when Jerusalem, when this is fulfilled. We, we see a foreshadowing of this or a preview of coming attractions today as we deal with, well, how are we going to resolve the, the Middle East problem? So he says, Jerusalem will be a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. So there's that focal point on on Jerusalem and and the southern part of Israel, not so much the Galilee or or the northern kingdom of Israel. And in verse 3, it will come about in that day. And whenever we see that phrase, in that day, in the Old Testament, uh, probably about 95% of the time it's referring to the day of the Lord. Watch it. There are a few places when it doesn't. But most of the time, uh, if you see in that day, that's probably what it's describing. But go make sure you read the context uh, just to make sure. It will come about in that day when Jerusalem is... Uh, is causing reeling to the peoples, and when there's a siege around, against Jerusalem, so this isn't. This shows that verse two is talking about a future end time period within Daniel's 70th week, near the end of Daniel's 70th week. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and we should probably translate that not just peoples but Gentiles. It's referring to all the Gentiles in the world in contrast to the Jews. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the Gentiles. All who lift it will be severely injured. Those who try to solve this problem are going to be uh, hurt severely by it. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. 
See, we're not anywhere like that right now. Not all the nations of the earth are gathered against Israel. Canada is very supportive of Israel. The United States is still uh, pretty supportive of Israel. There's mixed support from other nations. There's a few other nations in the world that still support Israel. So uh, Zechariah is depicting a time when all the nations of the earth are against it. The United States included, Canada included. This is within the tribulation period. There's no Christian influence whatsoever. And that day, declares the Lord in verse 4, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. As destructive as it looks, God is still in control, and no matter what the plans of the Antichrist are to decimate Jerusalem and annihilate the Jewish people, God's going to stop him. That's the point of verse 4. I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So people always say, well, are they going to have horses then? And then you have people like Hal Lindsey who used his imagination and say, well, this was just, these writers didn't have terms to talk about, uh, you know, you know uh, M60 tanks or uh, whatever the latest tank is or armored personnel carrier, any of those things. That's what they're describing. And as I pointed out in the Revelation series, at the sixth judgment, there's going to be this massive asteroid shower on, on the earth. This is about a year and a half into the tribulation that I believe is so massive it's going to take out the electrical grid. It's going to throw everybody back into a pre-20th century uh, time frame in terms of technology. Electricity, water power, all of those things are going to be removed and they're going to ha- all the armies of the earth are going to have to go back to the time-tested uh, technology, uh, bows and arrows and spears. And, I mean, if you wipe out the electrical grid now, you, you can't fly any of the helicopters. You can't fly the F-16 jets. You don't have the computers to run all of these things. All of a sudden, everybody's back to throwing rocks at each other. So they'll be back on horses, and I think this is literal. Every horse will be struck with, with bewilderment, his rider with madness. God will watch over the house of Judah and every horse of the peoples of the Gentiles will be struck with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through Yahweh of the armies. There's going to be this this true, genuine revival as God delivers those in Jerusalem. Just imagine that under siege as they're thinking about all the times in their history when they've been under siege in Jerusalem and they're about to be overrun and God destroys the army. And then they are going to cry out and recognize that he is their God. Some other passages to talk about the day of the Lord, Isaiah 13, 6 through 9. Isaiah says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty because God is ultimately in control. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. That's in the context in Isaiah 13, talking about the fall of Babylon, which takes place in, in the future. So it is described as a time of fury, burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And so there's a judgment of sinners at that time. Amos 5.18-20 Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord. See, just like today we have people say, Oh, I wish the Lord would come back. They were saying, Oh, I wish the day of the Lord would come and end all of this. You who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. He says, You don't know what you're wishing for. You don't know what you are for. This is going to be the most horrendous catastrophe you could possibly imagine, worse than anything else ever to happen in human history. It will be darkness and not light. Is when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. So I love the graphics here. You're running away from a lion, and all of a sudden you run right into the arms of a bear. How could your day get any worse? Or you go home. And you think, oh, I'm finally home and I'm safe and secure, and you lean up against the wall and a snake bites you. 
says, you think that there's hope and there's no hope. The day of the Lord is not a time of hope. It's a time of judgment. He says, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it at all? There's nothing positive about the day of the Lord and that judgment at all. It is something that is horrible. And then we come to Joel 2.28 and following. And this is uh, what I always think of as a central passage on the day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord not only involves judgment on the earth, but it involves the things that are going to take place in, uh, uh, among the, uh, the stars, in the heavens, the moon is going to be, uh, I mean, the sun is going to be darkened and the moon is turned to blood. Guess what's coming up in another month? We're going to get, get another blood moon. Remember, there are two uh, blood moons this year, one at Passover, one at Sukkot in October. Next year, it'll repeat, one at Passover, one at Sukkot. And the reason you have these things I pointed out in the study I did previously was because the, uh, the Jewish calendar is built on full moons. So it's no, no uh, circumstance or it's no accident that these full moons occur on feast days. The calendar is built on a lunar calendar, so you expect that. But the, the, it's not just that there's a blood-red moon. Of course, it's not always fully blood red, as we'll see in these passages. There are other things that go along with that. There's a series of events. The sun also is darkened. There are other things that go along with it. Joel 2.28 says, It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. So after this means after the events already described in relation to the end-time judgments. After this, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of the new covenant, which will be put into effect, of course, at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the tribulation period. Uh, your, my, uh, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. This is what was quoted by uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2. The trouble is that none of these things were actually happened when, when you know, on the day of Pentecost. Peter was just quoting it to say there's, these are the kinds of things that happened by the Holy Spirit. What, what they saw on the day of Pentecost is similar, but it wasn't the same. Verse 29, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. That's a reference to the fulfillment of the, of the uh, new covenant. Now, Joel 2.30 and following, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. So there's one thing that's going to happen on the earth. And what's that going to be? That in the Jewish community, men and women, their sons and daughters are going to prophesy and they're going to have visions and dreams and all these things are going to happen that have to do with revelation. And then following that, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. So it's not just that you have a full moon that occurs on a feast day that looks red. That's got to be preceded by this, these young men and young women seeing dreams and visions and all of these other things, as well as these other wonders in the sky and on the earth. And then, in verse 31, the sun will be turned into darkness. So it's not just the moon. It's not just a lunar event. The sun is turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So that, and it's immediately followed by the coming of this final judgment at the end of the tribulation. So what we see with these so-called blood moons has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the end times. It has to do with interesting uh, effects of today. And as I pointed out, if you go back and look historically at the uh, alleged fulfillment back in 1492 and again in 19, I believe it was in 1951, 1967, when these things have happened, why is it that they don't go back to all the different times when this uh, phenomenon of a full moon that looked red that occurred on a Jewish feast day, why don't you look at all of those between, let's say, AD 70 and 1492? What happened during that time period? What's that, 1,470 years? So it's roughly 1,400 years since the fall of the temple. Why don't they go there? Because nothing significant ever happened on those days. So they're cherry-picking the evidence, cherry-picking the data. So 
Verse 32 goes on and says, It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, this is at the time of the great and awesome day of the Lord. This is using the phrase day of the Lord in terms of its most technical sense as that period immediately surrounding the return of Jesus. Uh, It will come about whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So what we see here in a study of the use of these passages, there's both a narrow sense and a broad sense. The narrow aspect uh, describes the, the time immediately preceding the second coming and the judgments that are associated with that coming, concluding the uh, the, the seventh bowl judgment concluding the tribulation period. That's the great and awesome day of the Lord as described in Joel 2.31 and Zechariah 14.1 through 5. Then the, there's a broad sense in which it describes the overall judgment of God in the tribulation period as the day of the Lord. It's not the great and awesome day of the Lord, but it's contrasted. It's the day of the Lord. So you have verses like this in Jeremiah uh, 37, which shows that this is part of Jacob's trouble. Alas, for that day is great. What day? The day of the Lord. There's none like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Jacob's adversity. That covers the whole uh, period of Daniel's 70th week. It's not just the end time. So this is a broad sense of the use of that term. But he that is Jacob or Israel will be saved from it. Another term, so we've looked at Daniel's 70th week, we've looked at the day of the Lord, we've looked at uh, Jacob's trouble, and now the fourth term for the tribulation is the wrath of God. Uh, we've gone through many of these verses already, so I won't take time on it, but First uh, Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9 both talk about the wrath uh, to come. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come in First Thessalonians 1.10, and in First Thessalonians 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath. Then we look at how the term is used in Revelation. In Revelation uh, 6.16, it's used in terms of the wrath of the Lamb. This is early in the tribulation period. This isn't late. This isn't that pre-wrath rapture uh, view that the wrath of God is only the la- very last period at the end of the tribulation. This, is, this, is descri- this describes uh, what happens during the sixth seal judgment, which is during the first six probably the first six months to year and a half of the first half of the tribulation. And so the seal judgment comes probably somewhere between a year to a year and a half into the the tribulation period, and we're described that that as this meteor shower, these asteroids are falling upon the earth and creating havoc, uh, the rebellious kings of men, the leaders of men, run into the earth to hide. They run into the caves and and wherever to seek protection, and they're just screaming upon the mountains to fall on us from the face of him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. So from the very beginning, the tribulation is described as a time of God's wrath. Revelation eleven eighteen, the nations were enraged, that's uh, Psalm 2, 2, and following, the nations are enraged, and thy wrath came, See, again, it's God's wrath. So this comes uh, in the uh, is a summary description of the first half of the tribulation period. Revelation 14.10, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This is talking about the second half of the tribulation when the wine is the deep, like in communion. What color is wine? It's, it's burgundy, it's, it's red, it's like the color of blood. So this is talking about the wine, it's the bloodshed of the wrath of God during that second half of the tribulation period. We see this also indicating Revelation 15.1 and 16.1, talking about this final period in the tribulation as the wrath of God. Now those, that when you look at people who look at the pre-wrath rapture view, they look at, at this and they say, okay, the wrath of God just comes at the end. But we have the wrath of the Lamb, which is the wrath of God. So the whole period is the wrath of God. Now, a couple of things about the, tri- the tribulation period and the terms that we, another term that we use for tribulation uh, to describe it is the tribulation. 
and also the great tribulation. And I'll say something about that as we go through this. The word tribulation in Greek is thlipsis. That's spelled T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S, thlipsis. And it's just a general word for adversity, calamity, distress, tribulation. And what the Scripture teaches is that all believers can expect some level of adversity or tribulation in life. Now, the reason I say that is because I've heard people since I was in college say, well, you people who believe in the pre-trib rapture, you just want to avoid tribulation. That's not true. We know that all through the church age, Christians have been subject to horrendous persecution, horrendous martyrdom. Just look at what's happening to those Christians in in uh, Iraq right now, is they're losing everything, and many of them are losing their lives, and they're being tortured, and they're having their wives and their children taken captives as sex slaves by by ISIS and uh, these radical Islamists. We do believe that there is horrid, horrid persecution. You think back to the period in uh, American history during the colonies as as we came into contact with the severely demonized uh, Indian tribes, American Indian tribes, and I mean, you just read the accounts of how they fought each other, and you can't escape the conclusion that they are, if they're not demonic, it's it's exactly how we would picture uh, the demonic. They were involved in all manner of shamanism and witchcraft, and and it, it's just phenomenal the extreme violence that occurred. And when you read the accounts, which I have done, of, of pioneers that were on the edge of the settlements and edge of civilization in the late 1600s, 1700s, especially during the time of the so-called French and Indian Wars, Queen Anne's War and uh, King George's War and all those different, King William's War, all those different wars that took place in the 1700s. What you discover is that there was a very good reason why the uh, colonists said that the only good Indian was a dead Indian. Because when the Indian warring tribes came into the settlements and they would kill the men and scalp them alive and torture them and do all kinds of unspeakable things to them while they were still alive, they would drag off their women, the children, and they would take them back and enslave them and mistreat them and abuse them in just unspeakable ways. And this happened again and again and again. And so it was such a horror on the frontier. And especially, and most of these are Christians. So we believe that Christians go through suffering, they go through martyrdom, they go through adversity. This is what Jesus taught, John 16, 33. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage because I've overcome the world. He overcame the world before he ever went to the cross. That's a perfect tense of that verb, overcome. And he hadn't gone to the cross yet but he'd already overcome the world. Romans 2.9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Uh, Romans 5.3, not only this, but we also exalt, we as Christians also exalt in our tribulations because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. So yes, we believe that we go through tribulation, lower case T. In Matthew 24.29, the term is used of an unprecedented future worldwide suffering. It refers to the entire term uh, or the entire period of Daniel's 70 weeks. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. So that refers to the first half of the, of the, of the uh, tribulation period. I mean, the first almost all of it, except for the very end time. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Once again, this is one of those passages that talk about those blood moons and what happens in the signs in the moons. And when does it happen? It's clearly preceded by all of the other signs in Matthew chapter 24. It comes at the end of the tribulation period. Mark 13, 19 is a parallel passage. It says, For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the creation which God created until now. So this is talking about the entire period of Daniel's 70th week. And then Mark 13, 24 talks about at the very end. That's a parallel to verse uh, Matthew 24, 29. In Revelation 17, 14, 
It uses the term great tribulation. Some dispensationalists take this as a technical term. The tribulations, the first half, the great tribulations, the second half. But I think in, it's not a technical term. In both passages, as you read them, it's simply talking about, it's using the term great as an adjective describing the intensity, the unique intensity of this period of adversity. And so it, the whole period is the great tribulation. In Matthew 24, Jesus uses the term when he talks about the second half because it's more intense than the first half. At this, After the abomination of desolation, you will have great tribulation. It was bad before. It gets worse in the second half. When we look at the length of the tribulation, we'll just look at this slide. It's seven years from the signing of that covenant with Israel until Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. Let me see what else. I have a couple of other things to say. Uh, next time we'll get into this, uh, talking about the key people in the tribulation. We need to uh, get our program out and figure out who the players are and define them and come to understand them. Now, I was putting off a question all the way through this because I thought I'd actually make it to the Antichrist. The Antichrist is... Uh, just to answer that question that came up last time, let me pull up the slide I put together on this. It talks about the people of the prince who is to come. Here's a slide. The Antichrist will be the head of a confederation of Western powers during the tribulation. That immediately negates, I mean, the fact that it's Western because he comes in from the, from the, he clearly has a headquarters in Babylon. I understand that. But he's, he, there's a coalition. If, if the Antichrist is the coalition of the Middle East, then what do you do with Europe and what do you do with, with West, the Western Hemisphere? It's like that's virtually ignored in the scenarios of some of these people who want to promote the idea that it's a Muslim Antichrist. And, um, and, and I understand their arguments for that, but they don't, they don't really wash. Daniel 9.26 has the phrase, the people of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come describes the Antichrist. Okay, so he's going to come in the future. The people are described as those who will destroy the temple. That's in 70 A.D. Those people who destroyed the, the, the temple in 70 A.D. are the people of the prince who is to come, who comes 2,000 years later. Those people were the Roman army. They are comprised of many different peoples from all over the Roman Empire. They came from North Africa, which now is Muslim. They came from the Levant area, which is, is now Muslim. They came from uh, Greece, which is not. They came from Rome. They came from Spain. They came uh, possibly from other areas of Europe around what is now, uh, used to be Yugoslavia, Serbia, Croatia, Macedon, those areas, all comprise this army. So the army are the, the, is made up of this conglomerate of peoples that basically populated the Roman Empire. So in AD 70, the people were the Roman Imperial Army of Titus, composed of people from all over the empire, which would include North Africa and the uh, eastern Mediterranean area. In Daniel chapter 2, in the, in the chapter describing uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the people, uh, it talks about the feet of iron and that big statue he sees, the, the, the feet of iron and clay. It's a mixture. The iron comes from the legs of iron, which was the Roman Empire. The feet are made up of iron, which is composed of the previous elements of the old Roman Empire, plus clay, which are weaker elements, new elements. This would include the United States, Western Hemisphere, Canada. All of these Western Hemisphere countries are descendant and our our institutions all derive from Greco-Roman culture. So we're all part of that. Uh, all, of, all of Europe and their parts of Europe that weren't part of the original Roman Empire. So all of that. So it's primarily coming out of th that organization looks at that, uh, that scenario. That pulls the world together because the, the passages in Scripture all talk about the Antichrist controlling the world. If you go along with the flow of these advocates of a Muslim 
Antichrist, you not only have the, the problem of the fact that this centralizes everything into a Middle Eastern scenario and ignores the rest of the, of the world, but you have a problem with the Antichrist coming along and establishing a covenant with Israel that would, by, all, by every account, establish the rights of the Jewish people to build a temple, a functional temple on the Temple Mount. You're going to argue till you're blue in the face with, well, maybe it was just, maybe there's going to be both of them up there. Whatever. There's no way a Muslim in that, with that kind of a power is going to allow a Jew to even set foot on the Temple Mount, much less build a, a third temple on the Temple Mount. So you, you, this is never explained uh, by these particular advocates, and then there are other problems with that, that position as well. So anyway, next time we'll come back and we'll look at the details related to the uh, Antichrist and the rise of the uh, final empire of Babylon. Lord, thank you for this time tonight to look at these things and to focus on the future knowing that since you have revealed them to them, so you're very much aware of what will happen. There will be no surprises. You're very much in control, and you will bring all things to a glorious conclusion, and we will see that all things do work together for good to those who love you and to those who are called according to your purpose. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the fact that we face tribulation today, difficulties today, heartaches and challenges, but you are in control. And no matter how chaotic our lives may appear at times, we can relax and trust you because you are in control. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.